Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Episode 57. Agent 57 is the name of the master of disguise in the television series Danger Mouse. The atomic number of lanthanum, soft, ductile, silvery-white metal that tarnishes slowly when exposed to air. When the dog is exposed to sunshine... It means a trip to the dermatologist. What's my favorite sunblock? A bar. Go, go, go! Welcome to the 57th episode of The Prop G Show. In today's episode, we speak with the one and only Esther Perel. Esther is a psychotherapist and one of the leading voices on modern relationships. She's led a therapy practice in New York City for more than 35 years and is the podcast host of How's Work? Question mark, which is in its second season. We discuss with Esther all sorts of topics, including the importance of self-awareness in relationships, why Eros is the antidote to deadness. Deadness. That's an awful word. I need some less deadness in my life. The pain points co-founders have experienced throughout the pandemic and parenting tips to ensure your children grow up to be great partners in all aspects of their lives. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? I think my youngest is going to partner with some sort of terrorist organization based on his current behavior. Okay, what's happening? What's brewing in the world of business? We'd like to bring you the unreported stories, the stuff that's kind of behind the scenes, underground, subterranean. The information reported that Facebook has around 10,000, get this, 10,000 employees working on AR and VR developments. That's fully 20% of the company's global workforce. In a podcast interview with two reporters at The Information, Mark Zuckerberg said that it makes sense for the company to invest heavily in this area because the combination of augmented reality and virtual reality is going to be the next major computing platform. Got to give it to him. He stuck it out for a while. I think VR is one of the biggest head fakes in the history of technology. Why? There is no prophylactic like putting a VR headset on your face. That'll guarantee you do not uh, procreate. According to a report by Technavio, the global AR and VR market size is expected to grow around $125 billion by 2024 with compound annual growth rate of over 35% during the forecast period. Wow, wow. In addition, global unit sales of standalone VR headsets more than doubled from 1.2 million units in 2018 to 3.4 million in 2020, according to Statista. Statista, okay, that's a great name. Technavio, not so much, not so much. 
You know who else is investing heavily in virtual reality? Apple. Bloomberg reported that Apple is expected to announce a mixed reality headset in the coming months, which would be the company's first major new device since coming out with the Apple Watch in 2015. So what do we have here? Facebook, Facebook realizes that in order to be a trillion dollar company, it needs to innovate vertically. It needs to control the rails, something Apple has done exceptionally well. What's going on here? It is very difficult to get past a quarter of a trillion dollars without controlling the rails. Why? Why? Because once you get to that market cap, people think, mm, you know, I'd like some of that margin, some of that cabbage. And if they have the rails, they can start starching margin from your product or they can pull tricks like saying, you know, we're not going to allow cookies such that you can't track people across multiple websites using iOS, which basically is a big kick in the nuts to Facebook. And Facebook is left sort of neutered. And Mark Zuckerberg doesn't like not being in control. Like he likes control of a third of the planet. He likes to be the sociopath in charge and surround himself with people that say, no, Mark, you're an innovator. No, you're not. You're a fucking sociopath. Anyways, anyways, most dangerous man in the world. I've been saying it for a while, but, but a brilliant business person realizes that it's very difficult to get beyond kind of a quarter of a trillion, a half a trillion, and to a trillion without being vertical. That is Netflix's major weakness. That is Disney's major weakness. And if you look at the most powerful companies in the world, whether it's Amazon that owns that's vertical, including manufacturing facility for batteries, then distribution, then the last mile, and then the website itself, uh, they are vertical. Who have they taken share from? FedEx, who is not vertical. They have the back end, but they don't have the front end interface with the consumer. And then Walmart, yeah, Walmart is sort of vertical, sort of, but they haven't reverse engineered and they're also not as strong in the, in the last mile. So they're not as vertical. Where does Netflix's weak point? What happens when Roku or Apple or Android or even Samsung on the front end say, you know what, we don't like Netflix or Netflix has become too powerful and we're going to start starching margin from that. It's always kind of a, if you will, a healthy tension between the point of distribution and the manufacturer's brand. And the manufacturer's brand tries to create pull through innovation and brand building. And the point of distribution tries to create advantage by access to the consumer, controlling the data set. And I would argue that slowly but surely, it's the distribution point or the person controlling the relationship with the consumer who has usurped, seized, acquiesced power from the uh, supplier, if you will, or the manufacturer's brand, as we have seen the sun has passed midday on brand. But anyways, Verticalization is an enormous trend in the world of business. Look at Lululemon going vertical, saying we want into your home with exercise. Look at Nike going vertical, 10, 20, 30% of their distribution. I consulted to Samsung and I said, stop talking about innovation. Enough with the bullshit. You guys have to go vertical and you have to take your direct-to-consumer share of sales from 2% to 20% because when I go buy a Samsung product, I speak to a guy with a name tag that says Roy in a place with bad carpeting and bad lighting called an AT&T or Verizon store. And as the Valerium steel of pre-purchase branding gets duller and duller, more branding impact is moved to the point of distribution. And if AT&T Verizon control that, you're always gonna be relegated to doing bad U2 commercials or commercials featuring U2, which only people my age enjoy. So verticalization or the ability to control the end consumer relationship vis-a-vis -vis hardware is hugely important. The question is, what is the entry point for Facebook? It's probably not through a phone. It's probably not through a smart speaker. Uh, Amazon supposedly has more open job requisitions or hires in their voice group than Google has across their entire company. So Amazon is making an unprecedented investment in voice. They also, with Alexa, have tremendous vertical distribution. And then you have Apple with the billion iOS users. Obviously, they kind of control the distribution of the wealthiest cohort on the planet. Then you have Android, who has the other 4 billion people on the planet. 
So what, how do you get in front of the consumer? How do you buy the distribution, if you will? And they seem to believe it's something around a VR headset. I don't buy this, but you got to give them props. 10,000 people, they, they are going deep. I sort of feel like Facebook is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and that is they are desperately trying to diversify away from this platform. Saudi Arabia wants to diversify away from an oil economy, and it feels to me that that Zuckerberg is trying to diversify away from this app economy and get into an operating system or vertical such that they can diversify away from just being an app or one button on someone else's vertical distribution and, and as a result, being somewhat vulnerable to that distribution. Anyways, in other news, we've been thinking a lot about the company Neva, or more specifically, a move to the subscription search engine, a subscription search engine. Why? Why social media is like nicotine. It's addictive. But it's not the shit that gives you cancer. What gives you cancer is the business model, specifically an ad model. Why does it give you cancer? Because it becomes all about engagement and trying to get as many eyeballs to view your content as possible. And the algorithms, which are benign, or totally indifferent, I should say, realize that to enrage you is to engage you. And so slowly but surely, content, including anti-vax or white supremacist content or the content that gets people the angriest or most upset, gets promoted. Or simply put, freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. And what you have is content that organically would get 1%, 2% of the dialogue, getting 20 or 30% because it makes Mark Zuckerberg wealthier to promote content that is bad for society and enrages us. Gee, isn't that great? So what's wrong here? What's the tobacco? What's the shit that gives you cancer? The ad model. And what happens over time? Google needs to grow its earnings 25% a year. So instead of taking you to the best place, when you type in Steel Blue Great Danes and Google says, well, should we take Scott to the best place to find information on Puppy Great Danes? No, let's take him to another site where we can further monetize it because we have to give our shareholders additional revenue. Whereas Netflix, which is subscription, is just focused on adding value to the end relationship with great content and taking you to the best place that it'll think it'll get you to renew again. You're focused on the relationship. That is really the most accretive move or the most accretive thing about moving from episodic transactional relationship, i.e. retail, is that someone has to sit in front of the store and you have to put your best and brightest people on getting more people into the store every day, as opposed to when you move to a recurring revenue relationship, you're focused on the relationship or just adding value to the consumer over the long term. And that's what we have here, a subscription search engine, in my view, and it's being run by the guy who ran search for Google, so he's got serious technology chops. But I would imagine in the $160 billion market that is search, right, that is search, you are going to have a subscription player. And the, right now, the leader in subscription search is this company, Neva, founded by the former head of Google Search. They recently raised $40 million in a Series B funding round, bringing its total funding to $78 million and has a valuation of $300 million. If I could invest in any company right now in the world, and I want to invest in this company, it would be Neva. Subscription search, it is going to be the next big thing. It's the nicotine, not the tobacco, not the shit that gives you cancer. Subscription search. Okay, so let's bring this home. Let's land this, let's land this round with an interesting acquisition that's circling in the news. The New York Times reported that Pinterest is in talks to acquire Visco, a photo editing and sharing app. Visco, founded in 2011, was last valued at $550 million, and of its 100 million users, 2 million are paying subscribers. See a theme here? See a theme? Are we starting to see, is your mind starting to gestate, metastatize, coalesce around a theme here? Boom. 
boom, get out of the dating in business and get into a monogamous relationship. And I'm not suggesting dating isn't wonderful. It definitely has its moments. But in business, you want monogamous relationships with the consumer. And that is you want to convince them to put a ring on it or you want to put on a ring and go all in in what is a monogamous relationship vis-a-vis -vis recurring revenue. And Pinterest wants into this business. They want out of the ad model. And that is smart. These people are smart. And also, their stock price has increased substantially over the last year and what I would call the purity trade. And that is people realize that being a handmade to sedition, that bludgeoning to death a Capitol Police officer isn't a great business model, Facebook and Twitter. And you've seen both Pinterest and Snap who have tried to dye their hat kind of white, if you will, the good guys um, are doing really well. And this purity trade, their stocks are up. And what do you do when your stock is up, maybe even beyond its full value or its fair value? You go shopping. What, 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 what? What, what? Pinterest has a market cap of around 50 billion and had a half a billion monthly active users worldwide as of the fourth quarter of 2020. In sum, look at Facebook trying to control the relationship going vertical. Look at Neva, the hottest startup in my view in the world or the most undervalued company in the world. 300 million right now, look for it to be 3 billion within 24 months, look for it to be 30 billion within five years. You heard it here, Neva. Neva subscription, verticalization, Pinterest taking some of that cabbage from the purity trade and using it to reinvest in subscription, verticalization and subscription. The two questions every business leader needs to be asking themselves every day. Stay with us. We'll be right back for our conversation with Esther Perel. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back. Here's our conversation with Esther Perel, a psychotherapist and one of the leading voices on modern relationships. I think this is really important. Our, we have a very male listenership, and I find that one of the reasons why male males uh, commit suicide at three times the rate of females, my that escalated fast, is that we are not good at talking about uh, our sadness or our relationships. The things that make us happiest or saddest are thriving or failing relationships. And I think it's important to have open and honest conversations about relationships, about emotion, about love, about sadness, about depression. Mental health is a sign of weakness, at least according to most men, and so they don't speak openly about it. And I think a good place to start is for all of us to be more open and thoughtful 
about the source or the greatest source of happiness and also uh, depression, and that is thriving or failed relationships. And I love Esther. I think she's fantastic. I think she's got just an interesting kind of, I don't know, provocative and raw view of relationships. Anyways, here's our conversation. So Esther, whether you own a puppy or you're a parent to young children, everybody talks about the importance of, so uh, the importance of socialization. What happens when the population who has sort of been in this sensory deprivation or relationship deprivation, all of a sudden the world opens up again. What kind of problems do you anticipate? I anticipate both problems and resilience. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't think that it's just going to be a dark picture. And it all depends on what happened with the puppy at home and with the children at home. Mm -hmm. To what extent was there sufficient interaction, stimulation, mirroring, empathy, reflecting back, um, uh, joy, playfulness, uh, you know, a, a, um, apprenticeship of responsibility, all the things that are part of socialization, right? Boundaries, responsibility, self-expression, accountability, the, 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 the main relationship skills. We have never had an experience like this where such a young generation comes out of a year of basically being not schooled uh, or schooled just long distance. In many parts of the world, if, if it's long distance, it means they're not schooled because there's not enough of a computer to even get them connected. I don't know that we can completely predict if the gap will be closed and within a few years people will be on a track, or if mm -hmm. we will feel that there are long-term consequences to this, where 10 years from now, I'm in therapy with a person and I have to take into account, I was in lockdown for a year when I was six, nine, 12, you know, mm -hmm. and it has an effect on me. I, you know, the question we always have when we attribute causality or correlation to certain challenges later on around mental health or relational health is that we often use what is available to us. Mm -hmm. You know, we can use 9-11, we can use the economic recession, we can use of the 30s I'm talking about, when people always talk about my family went through the Great Depression. You know, right. there are marking events like that that seem to have created certain coping styles, coping mm -hmm. skills and coping styles. I don't think that is going to be different. We will be explaining some people's challenges by virtue of what they experienced this year. You refer to or you talk about the death of Eros. What do you mean by that? I think that we all straddle two fundamental human needs in life. Mm -hmm. uh, our need for security and safety and stability and predictability and our need for freedom, for adventure, for exploration, for discovery, for curiosity. This year, security became so fundamental that the balance snapped off its hinge. We had to completely suppress the life-affirming elements of Eros, that life force that lives on the side of happenstance, chance, curiosity, exploration, discovery, imagination, mm -hmm. that whole side needed to be basically shut down. And partly, you know, Eros to me is an antidote to death or to mm -hmm. deadness. It is of a vibrant, vibrant, important force in our life. It's not just sexual. 
Sex is a piece of this, but it is much bigger. It is everything that connects us to our sense of aliveness, vibrancy, vitality, curiosity. Curiosity is change. It's the openness to the world. And I think that people in the course of flattening, or I would say like in, in the process of flattening the curve, people basically had to flatten themselves. Mm-hmm. And you ex- you feel it. You talk to people. Every therapist I speak to, we're, we're in this conversation about how do we keep people connected to a certain energy, to a certain libido, to a certain, you know, how do we help them know that freedom in confinement comes through our imagination? In that sense, when you ask me about the long-term effects on kids or, you know, some Sometimes you see children and they were in their houses, but they took a box and the box mm-hmm. became a, a set of rocks. And then they took a bunch of books and those books became the bridge. And they really used their imagination to transcend the limits of their reality. Adults often find that much more challenging. The mm-hmm. loss of Eros is the loss of the side of us that remains connected to all those elements that help us fight our sense of deadness. Yeah, my kids have just been playing more video games. Uh, I like your version of kids better. Uh, What about when you look across your sample set of patients and why people are coming to you, how how has that changed? What do you see less of? What do you see more of? The majority of the issues that patients bring to Therapy, And I would say the same thing was true for the people who we interviewed in the whole new season of the podcast of How's Work, which was really done throughout the pandemic. So I didn't choose the topics. I did like mm-hmm. in therapy. I, I read hundreds and hundreds of applicants and I saw what do people want to talk about? What are their pain points? They are evergreen, but they are exacerbated. So the people who found it, you know, they, they lockdown made it so that you were delocalized. You couldn't leave your house to go to work, to the gym, to see friends, to see your family. You you had to spend so much time with one person. And I typically say one person cannot be a whole village. And here mm-hmm. this one person kind of had to be a whole yeah. village. Um, so then you begin to see all the things that you have and all the things you don't have, the things you can't talk about, the times you don't turn to your partner, the places where you don't trust them, the the the, cha- the differences in aspirations uh, about life at this moment. Um, the the lack of energy, the chronic resentments, the bickering, the mm-hmm. who does what, the shift in power dynamics, the gender roles that are being completely kind of redivided along very binary lines, whose mm-hmm. job matters more, who gets a chance to say, you know, I need to go upstairs to work and who gets a chance to say, I want to leave my job, you know, whose priorities matter most. It's all of those things that, uh, um, but without the resources, without mm-hmm. the ability to reach out to the, the air, the other people, the other activities that usually sustain us in a certain rhythm with our partner. You've been uh, taking sort of relationship therapy into the workplace and counseling co-founders. What are you finding are the, the, the pain points, uh, your term, with co-founders during a time of covid So the the difference if the co-founders are also partner in life, Mm -hmm. uh, which I explored a few, um, and versus whether they are uh, friends, two friends, and what stage of the the business that they are in. Um, 
there's an episode that really gripped me because it's it's a, a gay couple. They have a thriving macaroon business. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it was so visual. That's why I, I keep remembering them because they talk about how they sell bites of happiness. In the middle hmm. of the pandemic, this macaroon business thrived, right? Because it is an experience of Eros to open a beautiful box of colored cookies that are just beckoning to be eaten. And they're so crummy. And, uh, you know, they're filled with little crumbs like that. And while they were selling happiness, they were themselves becoming more and more miserable. Because, again, there was no rhythm for the rupture and repairs cycles that are in relationships. Um, the other thing is, I would say, the vast majority of arguments that you will see or impasses, relationship impasses that you will see between the co-founders basically amount to three major issues. Mm -hmm. Power, trust, and integrity. So whose priorities matter most? Who, you know, who gets to make the big decisions, whose face appears on the pictures, you know, who is mm -hmm. typically associated as the leading person, etc. Trust, who has my back? Are we in this together? Can I count on you? And integrity do, and recognition, do you value me? Am I being respected as a person? Much of the conversations you can basically distill into these three major areas. And what made it more challenging now was the fact that um, it all happened in a pressure cooker with mm -hmm. uncertainty around, prolonged uncertainty, not really knowing. So when you have uncertainty, it is very easy to polarize and fragment in a relationship mm -hmm. because the fact is nobody knows what is the right thing to do. But people use certainty to fend off fears and, and uncertainty, if you want. So they polarize. They, we should do this. No, we should do that. Mm -hmm. And the more you have an uncertain world outside, which now impacts the business inside, and the more likely you, when problems occur, you see that kind of polarization where each one becomes more intransigent about which thing to do. We should expand, we should not, we should contract, we should wait, we should act, we should move. You know, these either or kind of stances, that's the polarization that occurs. The more uncertainty you have on the outside, the more possibility for polarization on the inside. As it happened in the society at large, similar process happens between co-founders. It's interesting. Uh, we always like to take a pause when um, the guest says something that it strikes us or resonates with us. And the thing you uh, you said that struck me was there have been some, there's been an acceleration or a concentration of what I'll call major life decisions uh, during COVID. Uh, just in my circle, a, a disproportionate number of people have decided to move. They've said they've taken this as an opportunity and we mostly see it as a good thing. They say we're moving to Florida or we're moving out to the country but people also tell you not to make big decisions when you're in a period of flux or crisis, that your judgment may not be uh, may not be at the top of its game. Is it dangerous for people to be making these big decisions, where to live, uh, whether to continue a relationship or not during a crisis like this? No, I don't think it's dangerous. I think it's mm -hmm. very normal and understandable. Mm -hmm. um, you experience a certain sharpening of your perception. You have. Mm -hmm. a, you also feel if you make a decision at a time like that, it gives you a sense of agency. Mm 
yeah. a sense that there is something you can do to fend off helplessness when yeah. you actually don't know what's going to happen in the world. Look, I think it's a broader answer. There are people who are quick on action mm -hmm. and could use more time to think. And mm -hmm. there are people who are prolonged thinkers who could on occasion get a little bit of a kick and move and act. Mm -hmm. you, you have both, you know, uh, you have both kinds of people in the time of a disaster action that makes you feel like you have a say over your life, that destiny somewhat is not completely eluding you, that you still have some kind of control. It always reminds me of the sentence of Viktor Frankl, that you can't control the circumstances, but you can control your response to the circumstances. Right. That's where your ultimate freedom lies in your choice to react. And it is in that frame that I understand all the decisions that people have made about moving, slowing down, being more at home, being less on a plane, you know, being in a place that feels more friendly, less, less, you know, putting focus on relationships and on life quality and not only on output and production and success, etc. Um, there is, there's going to be an exodus from the cities and there's going to be a re-entry into the cities by those who couldn't previously be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, life isn't about what happens to you. It's about how you respond to what happens to you. You you talk about invisible forces that can help bring perspective to relationships. What do you mean by invisible forces? I think that when people come to work, they mm -hmm. always show up with two resumes. An, mm -hmm. a, an official resume that tells you their work history and an unofficial resume that is basically their relationship history, the mm -hmm. messages that they got about how to live and work with others, whether they had an emphasis on self-reliance, as co-founders often do, whether there was an emphasis on interdependence and loyalty, whether they were um, told that it's okay to ask for help. Mm -hmm. All of these elements of relational history around Boundaries, communication, accountability, apology, creativity, the relation between the self and the other, all of that is your relationship history that comes to work. That's the invisible forces. They will influence the way you communicate, you conflict, you connect, you create. You know, it's underneath whether you compete or whether you collaborate. Mm -hmm. And these dimensions, by the way, are very important also to your questions about the co-founders. What, what is your culture? What is the way that you organize your thinking and your responses when you are in relationships? For example, do you come with a sense that things are always on your shoulders, that you're always the one who has to do more, that if you don't do it, nobody else will? If you have that worldview, it influences. It's a filter with which you will interpret many situations. If your sense is people don't really respect me, people don't really value me, people never really listen to me, you know, because they always listen to my three siblings who were ahead of me. <laughs> right. It's a filter. And those invisible forces, we don't pay enough attention to. And in fact, they run the show. They run the relational dynamics from underneath. 
There's a lot of studies around or articles around kind of the tells or indicators when a therapist knows a partnership's going to work or not work. What are your series of tells when you're speaking to co-founders or people in a relationship around the likelihood that it'll, that it'll work or not work? That's a great question, Scott. You know, there's a lot of research in the romantic sphere that John Gottman did with his colleagues about how within the first opening of a conversation, in the beginning of a relationship, they can predict divorce. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there are a few things I look at. And mm -hmm. one is, uh, A, the degree of self-awareness. How much are these people able to see themselves? How much do they understand their relational diary and how it influences the way they interact with others? Two, what is the kind of complementarity that exists in this partnership? Mm -hmm. The complementarity is how their roles, how their styles build on each other and mm -hmm. how they are more together than each one alone. Mm -hmm. So... Complementarity is based in differences, but the, different, the differences themselves is not the issue. It's, it's, the, it's how are they being played out. I'm a detailed person. Mm -hmm. You're a big picture person. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But when it is used complementary, meaning I appreciate that what you think about is not the way I think about. And I can continue be the way I am because you are the way you are. Mm -hmm. And I accept your influence. I accept my dependence on your point of view. You're willing to take more risks. I'm the one who is, first of all, needing to check all the numbers all the time, making sure, can mm -hmm. we do this? Instead of you telling me, oh, you're always counting pennies, you're actually telling me, I rely on you to take my big dreams and tell me if they are doable. Mm -hmm. That's complementarity, is I need you in the way that you are, because it helps me to and allows me to continue be who I am. Complementarity. I, I can't even go enough about that term. And when I start to analyze it with people and I say, give me some of the major complementarities between you, you also get a quick sense of are people able to accept influence or are they too defensive and too insecure? And they, they'd rather say, you know, it's me rather than I can't without you. Mm -hmm. Um, how much are people able to have difficult conversations? And are you able to take time to work on the relationship and not just on the business? After all, 65% of startups fail because the mm -hmm. relationships between the co-founder falls apart. And that's a waste of a lot of good ideas. And often it is because there is such an excitement over the business and such a lack of attention to needing to really look at, um, at the relationship. In, the, in, in one of the episodes of this season, it starts with one of them saying, he's the creative, I'm the logistics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's a complementarity, right? And then you, but, but the issue is, okay, and how does that play out? And does that mean that you are certain things that you can never talk about because you're not a creative? Does that mean that you feel that you both need each other and you rely on each other and it's working really great? Or is there a sense constantly that you're fighting each one of you saying to the other, you couldn't without me? That is not the same as I couldn't without you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So complementarity and, um, and difficult conversations, it, those problems 
seem to me to have specific recommendations and ac action items to, to, to overcome those. One, a greater appreciation, recognizing that one plus one equals three, maybe having regular time, maybe with a moderator to have to kind of cl clear the air, so to speak. Back to your first one, though, self-awareness, that's a little less obvious. Say somebody is in a relationship and they're committed to making it work, to expending the effort to try and make the relationship stronger. And they recognize that self-awareness is an issue. And I think some people don't even know what it means to be self-aware. What are the practices or the tools uh, for becoming a more self-aware partner? I would ask you, Scott, like this, mm -hmm. because there's actually another piece that, we, we didn't, that I didn't include, which is how have you dealt with your previous breakups? Mm -hmm. Because whenever you are two people in a room, these two people are also accompanied by all the ones that preceded them. Mm -hmm. And I will react differently to you based on how my relationship with my previous co-founders or my other co-founders have played out. So I will ask you uh, a series of questions. You know, they range from um, when you are upset. Mm -hmm. What is what what? What would I be, if I was a camera that followed you and I knew what happens inside, but nobody else can see it or hear it. When you're upset, what are the internal voices? Well, how do, how do you speak to yourself? And what are the voices and how do they speak to others? And upset can be when you're angry, when you're hurt, when you need something. How good are you at expressing your needs? How good are, good are you, meaning tell me about you when you express your need. Tell me about you. What could I learn from you in how you apologize or don't apologize or are able to deal with your mistakes or deal with other people's mistakes? Do you tend to be someone who takes things on you and you make yourself the center and you say, it's my fault? Do you tend to be an externalizer and basically... You know, there's always reasons for why things happen the way they did, but they never have to do with you. Mm -hmm. And I don't say it as bluntly, but those are the themes that I'm looking at. Give me a time when you brave the unknown. Describe a time when you changed your mind. That's an amazingly good one, because I want to also look at flexibility versus rigidity. Um, what is something that you wouldn't want your mother to know about you mm -hmm. uh, or your best friend to know about you? Um, what's the best prank that you've ever put on somebody? Um, what's a time when you surprised even yourself? Mm -hmm. If there was one thing in your personality that you would want me to know about, what would it be? If there was one thing in your personality that you would want to change, what would it be? You basically never use the word self-awareness. Mm -hmm. You ask, you know, dozens of questions that, that basically are like a kaleidoscope of how we are in our relational self. And you look at the relational self. You don't just look at the in, inner. Self-awareness for me is your knowledge of yourself in relation to others as well as to yourself. But it, I am very much a relational thinker. And if I'm looking at a co-founder relationship, I'm looking at the relationship. What I'm saying by that is that what you feel inside and how it plays out between you and others are two narratives. They're not one narrative. Mm -hmm. Inside, you may feel lousy or down or depressed, but interpersonally, you wield tremendous power because you have a person there that is constantly trying to cheer you up, prop you up, activate you, energize you. 
you may feel powerless on the inside and very powerful in the relationship. Coming up after the break. Confidence or self-esteem is the ability to make mistakes and be flawed and yet still hold yourself in high regard. Stay with us. So let's shift to parenting. I have 10 and 13-year-old boys. Right. And say I want to increase the likelihood that they're going to be great partners, that mm -hmm. they're going to have, be great co-founders, they're going to be great spouses, they're going to be great friends. Mm -hmm. Any advice to parents around what we can do to increase the likelihood that our children grow up to be great partners? Yes, I have two sons, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I, it was a mission of mine. I remember when they were very little, I said, I would like them to become men later on that mm -hmm. I would want to date. Like, I would, mm -hmm. <laughs> I would want them to be the kind of person I would be drawn to, men or women, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, I, the first thing I would say is that it is an absolutely ongoing project. It's not something mm -hmm. you do once or on occasion, and it starts... Really, uh, for me, it included uh, very early on having sleepovers mm -hmm. um, in my place and them going to others so that they would see different rules, different norms, different ways of being and mm -hmm. become adaptive and mm -hmm. flexible and understand that the world doesn't revolve around them. That was a major one. The second one was uh, I, I and we, my partner and I, would talk about our relationships in front of them, not our relationship with each other, our friends, our colleagues, mm -hmm. things that were happening to us. Because very often kids don't know that adults have fights too, that mm -hmm. adults lose friends, that adults need to have difficult conversations with their own friends. That, um, the stories we chose to read to them, the movies we chose to watch together, the conversations we had about these movies afterwards, where we actually didn't just ask them a question, they saw us talk um, major piece, which I think is less common in the United States, is have the kids at the dinner tables whenever we have gatherings which mm -hmm. we have many, so that they learn to talk with their own age and older people. And they actually enjoy the company of, of adults and see how much they have to learn from them and vice versa. That's a big, big one. It became a major piece in which their own friends wanted to be at our dinner table so that because the conversation was interesting and often more interesting than the one they had with each other. Um, to talk about peer pressure and our own experiences with peer pressure when we were younger and the times when we dared to speak out and the, time, the times when we wished we had spoken out and the times when we were there to help someone who was being bullied and the time when we feel like we complicitously kind of let things happen around us and we feel still icky about it today. So it's an ongoing conversation about the multiple aspects of relationships, of thinking of others, of helping others, of knowing that the more you give, the more you have, of uh, caring, not just in the abstract about the well-being of people on another part of the planet, but literally about the person next to you. Mm -hmm. You know, not just to be magnanimous in concept, but actually in, in action, to be great hosts. I think mm -hmm. that's another piece in which you learn to receive people, to understand their needs, etc. It's all of that. It's sharing mm -hmm. articles together that we read 
that we said that would be interesting for you on different things happening in the world. It's sharing music. Mm-hmm. It's going to listen to live music together. It's ex- it's having experiences with them. I mean, it's it's been one of my major projects in my life was to have that experience of two sons that I was raising in a country that wasn't mine and in a culture that wasn't mine. Um, and I think once you, st- when, when uh, I'll give you one moment where I knew something special had happened. We had a conversation one day on, a, on the four of us. What are some of the values that are important to you and that you feel that you received from us? Mm-hmm. And when they answered, we looked at each other and it was like, we've done a lot of things and a lot of things that I regret. But this stuff, I feel like, yes, I, I, I did it. I plunged into that idea. I'm going to turn these young men or boys into, you know, great guys. And by their values, I knew the message had passed and I was relentless. <laughs> so what, uh, just along the lines of Any of talking- this list that, that you would pick? around how to turn your boys into to men. Mm-hmm. Look, I think about this a lot. And uh, uh, the CEO of a company that actually acquired my last company said something that always stuck with me. And that is, even when you think they're not listening, they're listening. Mm-hmm. Even when they roll their eyes, even when they don't want to hear you, they're listening. And I tried it with my oldest son. I try to have these you know, I think toxicity and masculinity have been conflated. I think masculinity is a wonderful thing. And um, I have a 13-year-old and I have these, I don't want to call them man talks, but I will say to him, I bring him upstairs all the time and I say, you just, the way you just offered to take the suitcase of our guests out to their car, I'm like, that's what a man does. Mm-hmm. The way you were, you, you, you took an active role in defending your younger brother, that, that is what a man does. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you embarrass somebody else for your own pleasure, that is not what men do. Mm-hmm. And I try to do these things. I, whenever I notice, even I think the little things are almost as important as the big things. And not to be judgmental or punish, you know, always castigating, but also reward the, the good things. But I, I take to heart or I hope that they're listening. Uh, so I think of it just as, um, you know, when you talk about relationships, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make as men and as fathers and as husbands is that we assume people are telepathic. We assume that because we appreciate and love our partners that they know that. If they look fantastic or they do something that really impresses us, we just assume that they know that and they feel that. And I think that men have trouble recognizing they need to articulate those things. And I think with our kids, it's just so important to constantly verbalize and reinforce. I, I'd like yep. to think that they're listening. That's uh, it. It's I, concrete, it's granular, it's verbalized, and it's reinforced. Yeah. It's in the details, you know, and you take action, and then you show the reaction, and then you show the emotion, and then you show the thought, and then you show the value. It's all five of these elements in the, each situation. Um, I also always suggest to parents to take each child alone and go do things. Yeah. If possible, more than one Great day, yeah. days together where you, when you take the child out of the family context and when the parent 100%. is out of their different parental people. context, different, different people. people. Yeah. So I, along the lines of self-awareness and asking a series of questions, and also we always like to end the podcast with advice to your younger self, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. So when Esther Perel looks back on her life, what decisions do you think 
I'm just so glad I made those decisions. What were the best decisions if, uh, that you made, if you will? And what decisions do you wish you could take back? I mean, I think that some of the best decisions I made was uh, leaving Belgium and then studying in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. then from Jerusalem to Boston, then from Boston to New York. And I made every decision by virtue of uh, people and lifestyle decisions. They never were driven by work. Mm -hmm. I always felt wherever I am, I'll find something to do. Um, and work always was very important. It never was the determining factor of my life. If work went well, but the rest was not going well, things were not good. Uh, and I was afraid in a little bit because on the one hand, I saw that in the United States work really is such a central defining feature of your identity. And I wanted it to be more than what I thought I would have if I stayed in Belgium, but I didn't want it to become the first thing I'd say when people say, and what do you do or what's your life like? I think to always keep having a rich life a full life, an interesting life as the primary thing is something that I, I, I've done consistently and I still think was the right decision. Um, I don't anymore feel that I have decisions that were wrong decisions. I just understand why I made them. Mm -hmm. I understood that if I wanted to be in the theater and remain an artist, that coming to New York City where you have to put food on your table is mm -hmm. not going to be the place where... I'm going to have to find other survival skills. I'm mm -hmm. going to have to do other things. Um, for a long time, I thought, oh, I wasn't confident enough to, you know, I didn't continue to work in the theater. But then I understood that it, there was a reason I needed to, bif to bifurcate and make other choices. So I no longer think in terms of wrong, wrong choices. Um, I think that as a young person, for a long time, I did things that I was completely sure that I could do. Mm -hmm. There were many, but somewhere inside of me, I did think that I could do it. The thing that I ended up doing that I had no idea if I was capable of was writing a book. Mm -hmm. um, that was the first time that I did something without any sense I can do it at the level that I want to do it. And mating in captivity did change my career. And then I wrote a second one. But... The shift was beginning to do things without knowing if I can do it and knowing that if it doesn't happen, it's not the end of me. It feels like a lot of this goes back to risk-taking and pushing the limits of your comfort zone, that, that nothing extraordinary is going to happen to you unless you take an uncomfortable risk. Would, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, my language, I would say that confidence is your ability to see yourself as a flawed individual and still hold yourself in high regard. Whereas in the past, I thought confidence meant, con you know, certainty and perfection in that sense. And that is, I got from my friend and colleague, Terry Real, confidence or self-esteem is the ability to make mistakes and be flawed and yet still hold yourself in high regard. The ability to make mistakes and still uh, hold yourself in high self-regard. Esther Perel is recognized as one of today's most insightful and original voices on modern relationships. And she is the best-selling author of The State of Affairs and Mating in Captivity. As a psychotherapist, Esther has led a therapy practice in New York City for more than 35 years. 
and she also serves as an organizational consultant for Fortune 500 companies around the world. She joins us from her home in Manhattan, New York. Esther, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, and stay safe. Thank you so much. Algebra of happiness. Who are the most patriotic citizens? Who feel most strongly or most fervent about the nation? Simple. Veterans. Why? Why? Because they have made the biggest investment and biggest sacrifice in that relationship with their country. So, so something wonderful happened uh, to me this weekend. Uh, our, our dog Zoe passed away about a month ago, a real uh, hole in our household. And I decided to do something I've wanted to do my entire life. When I was eight years old and my parents split up, I came home one day, I was a latchkey kid, which meant I let myself in early. Think about that, at the age of eight, I was coming home early from school and I was alone for a couple hours. Today they'd call child services. And one day over, over the wall in the neighbor's house, I noticed, I heard this barking and I looked over the gate and I saw this demon animal. And this thing came running toward me and barked. I have never been that scared. I ran back into the house and what was the demon animal? It was a Great Dane. And our neighbors saw how terrified I was and then brought this Great Dane over, Thor, this beautiful, big, black Great Dane, male Great Dane. The thing must have been, I mean, I was maybe 50 pounds and this thing was 180 pounds. And I remember just being terrified of this thing. And my dad was home and I was hiding behind my dad and I was really upset and crying. And so they left and they brought it back the next day. And then slowly but surely, I got to know Thor. And as you would imagine, Thor was the sweetest, most loving creature I had ever encountered. And every day, I remember in uh, in school with the last the last day we would have or the last hour we'd have spelling and other stuff. And I remember I would just start thinking about Thor, and I would run home. I didn't have a lot of friends, and I would hang out with Thor. And uh, occasionally, we lived near the beach. I'd go to the beach with Thor, and it was just hilarious. Uh, this, you know, 50 pound or 60 pound eight year old and this enormous black Great Dane. And I just love this dog. And unfortunately, the dog got very sick about 18 months later at a fairly young age and had to be put down. But my whole life, my whole life, I have wanted a Great Dane. And I've been told for 40 years, they're too big. They're not good dogs. They're unhealthy. I like getting rescue dogs, not pure breeds. They have bad hips. And I would say that a finite nature, a sense of the finite nature of your life is such a blessing. And I decided I'm blessed. I have pretty much everything I want other than relevance and self-awareness and a deep sense of meaning. Other than those things, I have pretty much everything I want, at least material things. And I thought the one thing I'd really like, I would really like, is a Great Dane, which makes no sense. Anyways, long story short... Uh, I flew to Kentucky and then drove a half an hour to a breeder. By the way, dog breeders, strange people. They're strange people. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I almost enjoy going to a dog breeder because I know I'm just in for a little, little heaping of estranya. Uh, so got our uh, steel blue Great Dane puppy. And this thing has been, I mean, it's the cutest thing ever. And it's been a fucking nightmare. It's crying all night. It's shitting and peeing everywhere as puppies do. I forgot what it's like to have a puppy. And I'm already so attached to this thing. I'm already so invested. And when you think about the people who are really important to you, you think about the relationships, you think about uh, the reason you are just so 
um, attached to somebody or they mean so much to you is you have invested so much. You will never invest as much in anything, at least if you're a decent parent, as you do in your kids. The amount of stress, the amount of worry, the resources, the time you invest in your kids is unparalleled. And as a result, there's nothing you feel that strongly about because you've never invested so much in anything. And already I'm just so emotionally attached to uh, our little Leia because I'm already just so invested in this damn thing. And I guess the question is, how do you flip that? Are there a series of relationships, whether it's friends, whether it's a parent who's struggling, uh, whether it's your relationship with your spouse, where could you proactively make an investment? Where could you sort of go all in? Because to really invest in a relationship is to become more committed to it and more appreciative of it. So ask yourself, ask yourself, where is an opportunity for you for investment? Where do you want to become emotionally invested in a relationship? You don't necessarily just have to wait until the baby's crying or until somebody needs something. Where could you make proactive investments? This is this is the key to happiness, to feel a sense of deep, meaningful relationships. And some of that is on you. Where do you want to invest? You you are in charge of that. Your bandwidth, your emotion, your generosity, your grace, these are assets you control. Where do you want to become invested? Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to The Prof G Show from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll catch you next week on Monday and Thursday. Check that out. And, oh my God, to resist is futile. You're surrounded by the dog.